Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Hey, we are going to look at the book of Ruth over the next couple of weeks. Uh, what we've decided to do is to just take a little bit of time in some of the uh, great Old Testament stories. So often we're preaching from the New Testament, and so we really wanted to just engage with uh, uh, a couple of Old Testament stories. In the last couple of weeks, we looked at Josiah. Uh, this week uh, and next week, and maybe even a third week, we're going to look at Ruth. Uh, there's just some great things there. I just want to just give us some background. It's, it's a little book. It's like just 85 verses, uh, four chapters. It's a very, very beautiful and poetic book in the scriptures. How many of you actually have just read the book of Ruth and just sat down and read it? It's incredible. It's just something you need to do. It's a really, really easy read to just sit down in one sitting and just uh, dig into it. It's this kind of beautiful love story. Uh, when I when I am preaching from it, actually in terms of the text, I'm actually preaching from the New King James, which is a bit unusual. Normally I would be using ESV, but particularly for this text, because it's such a beautiful poetic piece, uh, catching it in some of that New uh, King James language, which just flows a little bit better. It's just a little bit of a nice way to, to read it and connect with it. So our, the text we're going to be reading is from New King James. Uh, some interesting things about it, it's one of the only uh, two books in the scriptures that are uh, named after a woman. It's one of only two books that's named after um, somebody who's not a Jew by birth. Right, so Ruth is by birth was a Moabitess. She was a, a Gentile. Can you, anybody think of any, the book, the other book that was maybe not written by a Jew in the in the scriptures? Come on, Bible scholar people. Esther. No, she was she was a Jew for sure, or, or we don't know who wrote it actually, but it's not named. It's named after her, Luke, right, from the New Testament. Right, Luke was written uh, by uh, by a Greek uh, physician, so that we've got that great piece there. Uh, there are some scholars who think he may have been a converted Jew, but uh, our best understanding is that he's a he's a physician. Um, so it's just very interesting in a patriarchal culture and in a culture that's uh, that's very sort of uh, locked into what it is to be a Jewish person to have this honored woman in the book and this honored uh, person who's just outside of the the Jewish faith. Uh, it's also a book that's the only book in the scriptures that's named after one of Jew- Jesus's ancestors. Uh, she shows up in uh, the genealogy in Matthew chapter one. And uh, we see uh, that um, this, this book is really giving us a little snapshot into the lineage of Christ. And we're going to look into that a little bit as we go. But it's just so interesting to have this uh, sort of standout, beautiful, poetic book named after a woman, named after a, a Gentile person, and that shows up in, in Matthew, that she's just there and beautiful and, and just a beautiful, artful piece. The basic outline of the story is that we have a family from uh, Bethlehem. Uh, there is a famine in that area in Judea. And because of that famine, they moved to the east to a land called Moab. I'm just giving you like a two-second summary of the story, and we'll go through it in more detail. Uh, they moved to the east to a land called Moab. Her sons marry there and uh, pick up two wives. And uh, the two sons and the father die there in Moab, die in this other land. And uh, she, she's uh, filled with grief. She's got two daughters-in-law and moves with one of them back to Israel. Uh, they have this incredible sort of serendipitous encounter uh, with a man named Boaz, who is a follower of Yahweh. 
and uh, the, their life begins to turn around. They are provided for, they are redeemed, uh, they are saved. And it's the story of that kind of serendipitous encounter and the Lord moving that life together. There's a love story, a, a great affection between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and great love that happens between her and Boaz. And so there's this beautiful story. It begins with a famine and ends with a family. It uh, opens with a funeral and ends with a wedding. And so it's just this really beautiful story, and there's just some great things uh, for us to see there. Uh, Really important themes in the book are redemption. Um, We see something uh, foreshadowed in the story in terms of the redemption that we're to receive in Christ. In the middle of this bleak time, in the time of the judges, uh, we have this uh, story of a man who is from the line of David, in the town of Bethlehem, who redeems uh, Gentiles, a Gentile woman. Does that sound like it just is roughly the shape of any other story that we are in the middle of right now? (laughs) Right? It's this amazing uh, connection, just a foreshadowing of redemption that's in there. Um, we, we don't see the full picture of Christ. We don't see the same level of self-sacrifice or any of that, but we're just given a little taste. Uh, St. Augustine was born in uh, 384 AD, speaking about the Old Testament, uh, and the New Testament says this, the old is in the new concealed. So just a, a, a priest, a, a servant of God from North Africa. The old covenant is in the new... Let me, let me get that right. The new is in the old revealed. The new, or concealed, the new is in the old revealed. Thank you. <laughs> Let me say it again. Uh, the old is in the new concealed. The new is in the old revealed. And so we have in the Old Testament just hints about the new covenant. And then when we look and we apply Jesus and we understand who he is and picture that back in the Old Testament, we, we, we have the whole story revealed and we come to understand it. So there's this theme of redemption. Uh, there's a story of conversion. Ruth actually uh, converts to Judaism and we see the how that happens in her heart. That's where we're going to actually end in our story today. We're we're not going to get very far. And then the beautiful thing uh, that I think is a thread and a really important theme for us to notice running through the whole book is the theme of providence. The theme of, I said serendipity before because that seems like it's just something sort of faded or designed, but but it's really the providence of God. Um, He tends to move in ways that takes natural things that are happening in our lives, natural, simple human decisions, and somehow works them towards powerful, supernaturally relevant ends. And that's just a part of the way God works in us. We love to see the miracles. We love to see the intervention. We love to see the healing. We love those stories in the scriptures. We know he's a miracle-working God. But when we're not seeing the miracles, we are absolutely confident that he is still working. He's still working that. The best illustration that I could come up with to help us understand that is how many of you ever played pool or or billiards before? There's a pool table. um, And uh, imagine that God, at the very beginning of time, you know, takes the cue ball, sets it on the table, winds up with the the cue stick and, and strikes it and sets all the balls in motion all at once with a sovereign and divine plan to make at the end of the journey every single ball to land at the right time in the hole that it's destined to go into. And then he says, okay, I've I've stricken this ball. The balls are all moving. Now, kids, why don't you come and come around the table? And how many of you have tried to play pool with little children? (laughs) 
right? You know that that doesn't work very well. But God has invited us as free agents, uh, people with, with choice, people with will, to sort of somehow participate in the game. But he knows in his sovereignty uh, the choices that we're going to make, the choices that we're going to be responsible for, the contribution that we're going to make to the game. And at times with the kids playing and all the balls moving and all of the chaos happening and we can't see how it works, uh, he'll intervene, sometimes he'll do miracles, sometimes he'll step in, all a part of his plan, all according to his will, all according to his glory. And still, from the cue stroke at the beginning, and all of the interaction of those of us who are free agents, uh, playing on the table, messing with it, making mistakes, all in our crazy, uh, chaotic way, he still has worked it out in a way so that by his power and for his glory, one by one, each ball will drop into the hole according to his plan. He is a sovereign and mighty God that works with us in our chaos-bringing ways and brings about his glory. And this is a story of him bringing about his glory through uh, serendipitous, sovereign, powerful, and mighty ways. And we're going to look at that a little bit together. So that's the story. Uh, we are picking up the story in a dark moment. We're picking up the story in dark, dark times. Um, this, uh, the, the, the text begins with this idea, Ruth chapter 1, now came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. That was not a fun day for the people of God. Those were not fun days for the people of God. The people were in the middle of this uh, cycle that God had set, cycle of um, sort of they would rebel and they would uh, be sent uh, judgment to, to guide them and to cause them to call out to God in their need. God would send them a deliverer. They would return to God. They would rebel again. And the cycle would continue and continue. And they were in the middle of this time. Uh, and there's a simple... Uh, phrase there um, that we see at the end of the book of Judges um, that speaks to the chaos, that this was a time when each person did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time that was just a mess. It was a time similar uh, to where we're at. It was a time of rebellion. Um, in those days, and this is the end of, of Judges in 21, verse 25, we get this stark kind of summary of the time. Uh, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that, does that sound familiar to us? That's all we have rulers and, and, and princes and kings and people who guide our world, but we live in a very relativistic culture where every person does what is right to them. Every person does what seems right. And if you'll ask your friend for advice, what is the thing that they'll tell you what to do with your life? Just do what's in your heart. Just do what feels good. It's the worst advice ever, <laughs> right? It's the worst advice ever. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and is beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's who we really are, right? We're people just like the people in the time of Judges, just like the people in that time of darkness where we will constantly uh, follow the things in our hearts that will let us uh, get into all kinds of trouble. Let us get into all kinds of corrupt yearnings, the buying of things we don't need, investing our lives in foolish things, and we miss what God has for us. Don't do what's in your heart. Do what the Bible says. Right? There's a call for us to become people, not just of our own hearts, but people of obedience and people of faithfulness. 
Uh, so it was that kind of relativistic time, like the time we're living in. Uh, it was also a time of judgment. Um, we know in the book of Judges, uh, just by this idea here, uh, there was a famine in the land. The Lord was dealing with the people in a very specific way in that time and place. And we don't look at every famine or every natural disaster and say, that's God's judgment. That's not what we do sort of theologically. But in that time and space, God was dealing with people in a very specific way. In Deuteronomy 28, we have the blessings and the curses. And it says, if you obey the Lord, you shall be blessed Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of the ground and the increase of your herds. Blessed shall be your basket and blessed shall be your kneading bowl. If you disobey his commands, then cursed shall be the offspring of your body. Worms will eat your produce and cursed shall be your flocks. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. God was dealing with people by uh, guiding them by uh, the suffering and the difficulty and the challenge that they would face as a result of their own sin. And so we live also uh, with an awareness of that, that we're, even, that we're Christians and we're living under grace. There is a way in which we pay attention a little bit to the things around us and say, hey, is that just some random natural thing that is happening in the world? Or have I somehow uh, maybe uh, come to a place where I'm experiencing the fruit of my own sin, the fruit of my own brokenness? And so in the middle of this time, in this middle of this time of sort of uh, judgment, the middle of this sort of relativistic time, this dark time where there are people who are being oppressed and they're needing warriors to, to come and deliver them and all of that violence and all of that pain. And in the middle of that, uh, in verse 2, we have a man named Abimelech. Uh, the name of his wife is Naomi and the names of his two sons were Mahon and Shilihon. Ephrathites, I don't know how to say that, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. And so in the middle of this time, we, we meet this guy um, and, and we see, like just to get an idea of sort of the brokenness of the culture the, and the difficulty of the time, the author is, is signaling something to us by uh, the names. Uh, Elimelech means um, that uh, the Lord is his God, so that's the, is his king. That's that's kind of that's kind of good news. But then we have his sons, Mahlon and Kilhon, which um, I don't think you guys would probably name your children like this. But Mahlon means sickly, and Kilhon mm-hmm. <laughs> means um, crying. So you take your children, and they and they come forth and. You're in the delivery room and you're deciding what you're going to name them. And you say, this one's name is, this one just looks sick. <laughs> and that one just won't stop crying. We're going we're gonna to call this their name. And, and that doesn't work out so well for them on the schoolyard either, right? We've got puke face and whiner or something. Like, what, what do you call them, right? It's, it's not a happy moment. It's not good names. But what the author is really trying to do here is signal to us what we see here in Deuteronomy 28. The fruit of their offspring was not blessed. There were a people living to some degree in that time and space under the discipline of God, and, and something was happening to them in that moment, uh, in the middle of that dark time. And so, um, in the middle of that, um, Elimelech just kind of scooches out. And says, I'm, I'm going to leave this covenant land where the Lord is judging me. And I'm going to go to a place where it, it's maybe better. 
where it's maybe more fertile. And if you're in the Holy Land, you can stand up on the part of Bethlehem and you can look out across on a very clear day across the, the Dead Sea and you can see the plains of Moab rising. And uh, the land there is a little bit higher. There's a big plateau, uh, 2,500 2, feet sort of above sea level and another one 3,500 feet above sea level. And as the moist air from the Mediterranean sort of comes across Judea, um, and rises up, it condenses and rains fall, and it's, uh, it's nicer land. And if you'll remember back to Genesis 19, that's where we have uh, Lot and Abraham standing, and they're looking at these two pieces of land, and Lot says, I'm going to take that good and nice land. And Abraham says, okay, I'll take this, this land that isn't quite as fertile and isn't quite as nice. And so the inhabitants of Moab, when they go off across the Dead Sea and go off to Moab, uh, they're going off to the people of Lot who have long since fallen from any sense of the knowledge of the Lord. They've fallen into brokenness and they've fallen into idolatry. They're serving uh, a God um, at that time that um, was uh, similar to Moloch, um, but, uh, but not the same uh, God, but still one that... Um, is an angry God and a fierce God, and to get him to do what you want him to do, you sacrifice your children, you sacrifice your babies to this false God. So he escapes from the land that he's been given, from his inheritance, and Elimelech takes his family, and he goes off into a land that is uh, looking a little bit better, looking more pretty, a little more safe, but it's actually a place of deeper idolatry and deeper brokenness. And there's a little bit of a lesson for us in the middle of that. Very often when we're in the discipline of God, when we're in a place where he is challenging us, he is coming after us, he has something to say about us and how we live our lives, we'll very often take a step to kind of comfort ourselves or take a step to something that seems better to us, that's actually sometimes deeper into the idolatry that has caused our problems in the first place on a small scale. When I'm feeling poor and feeling uh, overweight, there's nothing I like more than a trip through the drive-thru, <laughs> right? To spend some money I don't have and to eat some food that I don't need, right? To comfort myself in this moment of awareness of brokenness, I might go and do something that's even worse. Uh, or, or a moment in your life when you're struggling with pressure in your business and struggling with identity, there's no better time to go and surf the web and look at toys that might make you feel better and see what you could buy that could, you could use to entertain yourself or, or distract yourself a little bit more when maybe you need to be wrestling with some of those identity questions. When you're feeling spiritually dry or depressed or lonely or in grief, we often lean into things that medicate those feelings, right? Rather than heal them, we go to media, we go to gaming, we go to whatever it is, and we take those, those feelings that we have of distance from God, and we just, we just turn it all off and try to go numb, when really we're meant to find ourselves on our knees and to pray and to seek God in relationship with Him and find a space of community rather than isolation. So we do that all the time. What Elimelech did is when we feel like the weight and pressure, maybe even of the discipline of the Lord is coming on us, we go to an escape route. And what uh, we're called to do is to do what David said. Psalm uh, 119 uh, in verse 67, uh, he's talking about uh, this kind of way of responding to challenge, way of responding to struggle and pain and allowing it to actually turn you towards the Lord. In Psalm 1967, he says, David is talking, he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word.
I was afflicted. I went astray, but now I keep your word. Martin Luther King said this, were it not for trials and afflictions, I would not understand the scriptures. C.S. Lewis, uh, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Those moments when pressure and pain sometimes come on us. Um, We don't attribute every bad thing that happens to us as discipline or the judgment of the Lord, but we need to have our ears open and attentive to say, hey God, are you saying something here that is calling me towards you? And so Elimelech, as he escapes uh, to to this other land, to Moab, to this land of wickedness, he ultimately loses his life there. He ultimately dies in that land. How many of us have sometimes tried to escape a calling back to a vocation that the Lord might have for us, medicate our stuff away, and miss, ultimately, a call to ministry, a call to service, a call to faithfulness, a call to Christian living that God might have for us. Because we didn't respond and hear him crying out to us in the suffering. We don't want to be like Elimelech. Uh, verse says uh, 3 to 5, Then Elimelech, uh, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Mahlon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So in, in the end, that's just not the journey we want, right? We don't want to be people who go out of our covenant inheritance. We don't want to go outside of the um, vocation that we have. We don't want to try to escape the disciplines of the Lord. We want to be in a place where we can hear what he's calling us to, live through the discipline, and await uh, deliverance as we pray. Elimelech was probably should have been uh, somebody who was cheering on the judge. Uh, at the time, the book is placed actually somewhere in the neighborhood. We think of Judges chapter 10, uh, somewhere in the reign of, um, I forget the name of the judge, um, but I think it's like uh, Judges chapter 10, verse 3 or 4. There's just a, a two or three line um, story of a judge there who lived for about 22 years and something about 30 donkeys. <laughs> But most uh, Jewish writers place the story of Ruth right in that little spot. And I'm not sure how they do it, but that's just what they do. Uh, The Jewish rabbinic uh, interpretation puts the book of Ruth right there in that moment. So for us to do that, to be like a liminalek and sort of try to escape uh, the the voice of the Lord calling us to something better, we we, we don't want to be that. We don't want to be people who, who die outside of our inheritance or die outside of land. This should actually scare us a little bit. Uh, But here we see the Lord beginning to redeem with those who remain, with Naomi and with Ruth. So they arose uh, with her daughters, verses 6 and 7, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. And so we see, even though they've left, they've been for about 10 years in Moab, the Lord is coming now and he's speaking to the people of Israel and he's beginning to move, he's beginning to redeem them. Uh, Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. Uh, 
and they went on the way and returned to Judah. So obviously Naomi's broken at this point. Uh, she is uh, wounded by the death of her husband. She is destitute. She is poor. She doesn't have a man who is a covering for her, who is providing for her. And she doesn't have sons who will care for her in her old age. So she is in a very, very difficult place and, and poverty uh, is on her. And she's got these two daughter-in-laws that she's essentially head of this very uh, strange household. Uh, and, and at that point, and we see a little bit further in the text, that she stops calling herself Naomi, which uh, that name means um, beautiful one, or it means, um, I've, I've forgotten the exact word, but it, it's, it's, it's one of those nice names. It's just like a nice name. But she begins to call herself bitter. Begins to call herself Mara. And so she, she's got this pain inside of her, and she's wrestling, she's moving back home, and, uh, and she hears because she hears that there's bread in the land, that the Lord has returned. And so that's just another uh, little note to us. It's not too late when we've gone outside of the calling of the Lord, when we've gone outside of our inheritance, when we hear about the goodness and the kindness of the Lord, we're meant to turn towards him. We're meant to go that direction and begin to walk in his way, begin to turn. It's, it's not too late. In spite of our grief, in spite of our bitterness, in spite of the pain, it's never too late to turn around, to repent. We saw that in the life of Josiah a couple of weeks ago. Jumping ahead to Ruth chapter 1, uh, 11 to 14, Naomi says to her daughters, they want to come with her, this is, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? She's like, they, they want to come with her, they're sort of speaking that out. Um, and saying, hey, hey, we'll just follow you then. And she's like, don't do it. Like, I don't have success to offer you. I don't have any hope to offer you. I don't have any resources. I can't, uh, why would you let me still be your mother-in-law when the sons are gone? There, there's not strength there to provide for you. But somehow, uh, in that moment, Ruth sees something of great value that Orpha doesn't see. Orpha kisses her mother-in-law farewell. She says, okay, see you later. You're right. You're not going to have more kids. You're not going to have a son for me. And I couldn't wait around anyway. And she's, she's gone. And Ruth knows that same reality, knows that same truth, but she speaks and she says, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to kiss you goodbye. I'm going to cling on to you. I'm going to grab a hold of you. I'm, I'm going to hold you. I'm, I'm going to stick with you. And we see in just a few uh, verses later, and, and by the way, if this doesn't happen, speaking of the providence of God, if this moment doesn't happen where Ruth decides, I'm going to cling to Naomi, uh, we miss something really amazing in God's mighty providence. Ruth is David's great-grandmother. King David's great-grandmother. We'll see that at the end of the text. That's a big part of the purpose of this whole book is celebrating this uh, person who's in the genealogy of David and in the genealogy of Christ. If this doesn't happen, uh, David doesn't come out of Bethlehem. Jesus doesn't come out of that community. Remember, uh, a shoot out of the stump of Jesse, right? Uh, born out of that place, born out of Bethlehem. Uh, the wise men don't end up there uh, checking out uh, a, a little house many, many years later. This is a pivotal moment where this choice of Ruth meets God's sovereign plan 
and, and something amazing unfolds that, that, that it will really be ultimately a, an incredibly pivotal moment in history, right? Christ will be born and will fulfill these incredible prophecies in the Old Testament. And it's this choice and this faithfulness of Ruth, even though she doesn't understand uh, the fullness of what she's doing, that, that causes all of this to be fulfilled. So the simple choice of Ruth, she begins to follow Yahweh. She begins to turn to him. She knows that Ruth doesn't have the stuff. She knows that Ruth doesn't have the money. She knows that Ruth doesn't have the resources. She knows that Ruth doesn't have the sons. But what we're going to see in just a moment is that what Ruth sees in Naomi is that through Naomi she gets Yahweh. She gets the Lord. And that's an incredible thing. Jumping ahead to Ruth chapter 16, or Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. This is Ruth's declaration. It's this beautiful little poem, this beautiful little song uh, in the middle of the text. Wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. What an incredible declaration of commitment. What an incredible declaration of, of followership. We're called to follow Jesus, right? We're called to follow him. We're called to follow after him. We're called to be his disciple. In Matthew 8, chapter 18 to 22, a scribe just comes to him and asks him, he says, um, teacher, I, I will follow you wherever you go. Just like Ruth, he's saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, follow me and let the dead bury your own dead. What Ruth did in following Naomi is what was very hard for this disciple, this scribe in Matthew chapter 8 to do. She said, I will follow you where you go. I will leave the possibility of husbands. I will leave my homeland. I will leave my gods. I will leave everything I've ever known because, Naomi, I know that you have something. And when we see in this poem and at the very center of it, and the construction of the poem is really beautiful, um, you see at the very center of it, and I've cut a little bit so you actually can't see it physically placed in the center, but, and, and, your people should be my people and your God my God. It's not just the language that she would have used in Moab in that time for what a God was. It's not the language uh, which would be sort of a generic language for God, a plural language for God, or a personal language for God would be Eli. But this language that she uses is Yahweh. Yahweh will be my God. And we see the conversion of Naomi. And we see, or we see the conversion of Ruth to the faith of Naomi. She becomes a follower. And, and it's a good question for us. When we have come to follow Jesus, can we say this? Do we, is this what our conversion is like? Is this what our conversion experience is like? Are we like Ruth in this? Do we give up our right to choose where we will go? Or, or are we going to retain control of that? 
Do we give up our right to choose our home and our possessions? Or do we follow Jesus to whatever home, whatever possessions he wants us to have? Do we give up our right to choose who our true family is, who will be your people? What if following Jesus means giving up some people that you like a lot, even though they might be trouble in your life? What about choosing to let the Lord be the one who determines the time and place of your dying? Not trying to protect and preserve your life, but being willing, as as we're called to when we follow Jesus, to give up our lives for him. This is really an incredibly challenging and incredibly beautiful statement of what it might be for us to be a disciple. There's a cost to following God, and when we hear these words of Ruth, we have to ask ourselves: is our conversion a love song like that? And that's the beauty of it. When you look at that poem, you don't somehow see angst there. You don't somehow see her grinding her teeth. You don't somehow hear her saying, oh man, it's the last thing I want to do. Like, it's pretty great here in Moab. Is that a question that we can ask ourselves? Is your conversion to Christ, is your conversion into becoming a true disciple of Jesus, can it become for you a love song? Can it become a a romance? Can it become adoration? Can it become uh, this kind of love? And I think that's the challenge for us. Because if you're honest, uh, like me, and the worship team can come forward as I'm uh, just finishing up here. If your challenge is, is like me, there's something in us that really wants to hold on to our Moab, isn't there? And when we think of following discipleship, following Jesus, it's very often about scrunching up our eyes and scrunching up our face and working up our will and trying to make this determined decision to somehow follow Jesus. But we need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit to become like Ruth so that this following of Jesus is where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, Lord, let them be my people. Where you die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. Do to me, and more also, uh, take me out, Lord, if anything but death parts us. I am 100% wholly, completely sold out in the service of Yahweh, in the service of Jesus. And I love it. That's who we're meant to be joy and love and adoration as we are passionate disciples. And so the question for us is if that joy and adoration isn't really there, what what else do you need to learn about Yahweh to fall in love with him again? And what do you need to let go of in Moab that you can live that life of love and adoration? Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.